This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. These postscript shows are supported by Fanatic.com. The fin rental company that ships FCS, Futures, Rainbow Fins, all the brands straight to your mailbox. Thrusters, quads, twins, singles, anything you want to try. Fanatic has it and you can keep them as long as you want. Just send them back in a prepaid envelope that Fanatic provides. All the shipping is covered in your $10 monthly subscription and you'll get your first month free by using our promo code PODCAST. But more importantly, you'll support this show. This is a smoking deal, and you will improve your surf experience and simultaneously expand your quiver. Fanatic.com, promo code podcast. Thanks. My name is David Scales, and this is my postscript to the 2019 Corona Bali Protected. Coming from Bells Beach, John John had leapt into first place in the rankings. Idolo had dropped a spot into second after winning the Gold Coast event. Jordi retained third, Felipe was in fourth, and Gabriel in fifth. Spoiler alert, everything has changed. Felipe was the only surfer from that top five to make it into the quarterfinals. But before that happened, new storylines emerged. For the third time in the season, in three events, the WSL was plagued by a mediocre forecast and four days of competition spread over the course of the 11-day waiting period. The event sputtered to a start on the first day of the waiting period and then ended in absolute fireworks with every surfer from the quarterfinals onward bringing full throttle surfing and dramatics. The end justified the means, and no one will remember the doldrums of those early rounds. But there still are a few points to discuss from those early rounds. Round one has been renamed the seating round, which is meant to be descriptive, but the reality is even John John Florence admitted in his post-heat interview that while he was glad to win his heat, he still didn't understand exactly how the seating works. WSL, 
please hear me. We, the viewers, should understand what a win or a loss means. And for goodness sakes, the athletes themselves should know. So the onus is probably on John John for that one, but beyond the complicated math, the seeding round is simply weird to say. It's straight out of The Handmaid's Tale. And it's almost always followed with the reiteration that the seeding round is indeed round one. So I'll be expecting to hear a rebranding on that in 2020, if not sooner. Only three surfers scored over 12 points in that entire round. This was mostly a reflection of the mediocre conditions, but if you missed it live, you didn't miss much. The one notable performance of the day was Felipe Toledo, who reaffirmed he is the best surfer in the world in waist-high rights for the fourth year in a row. He secured a nine-point ride, the highest score of the day, on a wave that nobody else even looked at. It was just a smaller, closed-out insider, and he hucked a giant air. So that was a highlight. Kanoa Igarashi earned the low light by scoring the lowest heat total of the day, 1.77. This was a learning opportunity. The reality is that through the course of the year, these things happen and the lesson is to not let it rattle you. Entire careers have been derailed by letting an external fluke lead to negative headspace, lead to a bad decision, and then things begin to compound. The next external obstacle came for Kanoa on the second day when the event went on hold through the entire morning and until the afternoon when competitors were relegated to windy but rippable surf. Kanoa Igarashi, undeterred, took that opportunity and clicked into form. His consistency and focus cannot be overstated. I've probably underestimated him since he qualified, and I really haven't run the stats, but it seems that he's always guaranteed to post at least a pair of sevens. And that's been true through all venues from Karamas to J-Bay to Pipeline, where he is finaled. His boards this year look incredibly sharp, and he only seems to be adding weight to his frame and more flair to his surfing. He set the highlight performance of day two and then posted the second highest heat totals in the following two rounds, only bested by Chloe Andino and Felipe Toledo. The one caveat that I'll state amongst my endorsement for Kanoa is the omission of 10-point rides in his young career. That extra gear, or maybe it's just the magic that Idolo, Kelly, Felipe, John John, Jordi, Gabriel, and even Julian Wilson all possess, has yet to be displayed by Kanoa. The good news for him is that he can win events and even a world title without 10-point rides. Consistency is his strength, and the current structure of the system is designed to reward that. Further, as the only surfer on tour flying the Japanese flag, he'll continue to develop hordes of fans without posting 10-point rides. And I'll get into more on Kanoa later. But another highlight surfer from this event was Wade Carmichael, who always seems to be on the best waves in a heat and never really blows an opportunity. His surfing is predictable, but his power is so undeniable and unbridled that it inspires awe every time he displays it. However, if he doesn't figure out how to sling an air when a section presents itself, it'll prevent him from being a top five contender. Mick Fanning really did close the door on that chapter in surfing's evolution. This fifth place finish for Wade moves him into equal 10th on the rankings, right alongside Gabriel Medina, who slid down five spots in the rankings. Chloe Andino started the season with a near win, 
and a very hotly contested second place. He finished 17th at Bells, entered this event in sixth, and really never fully unleashed. He paced himself, but he lacked the fireworks of Michael Rodriguez or Felipe Toledo, just slowly making heats with modest totals, and to be honest, was pitted against less complete surfers in each round. Again, this seating is still a mystery to me, but I wonder if the even-keeled pacing of Chloe Andino and Jordy Smith is actually a tactic to draw easier matches through those early rounds. Chloe eventually lost to Jeremy Flores, who somehow resurrected a level of surfing that we haven't seen from him in years. Inconsistency and poor decision-making has always plagued Chloe Andino, and he's admitted that lack of focus was the culprit. This is only the third event of the season, but if Kaloe can maintain this level of pacing, his surfing is worthy of a top five finish, which is where he currently sits, but it'll really not put him in contention for a world title unless he can shift into that next gear in future events. After the first two events of the season, I made a similar argument for Jordy, that it looks like he's in marathon mode, with his sights firmly placed on a world title secured at Pipeline through a foundation of fifth place and better finishes throughout the year. He's calm, relaxed, slowly increasing his intensity level through each heat, through each event of the season. Other than the big day at Bells, his boards have looked really better than ever. It's a quiver refined and shaped by his coach, Chris Gallagher. Unfortunately, Jordy did hit a hiccup in round three at Karamas. The internet blamed the judges, but it was self-inflicted. He posted two solid scores in the first five minutes, held the lead, and sat for 15 minutes until Jesse Mendez edged him out by less than a point. Again, the internet pointed the finger at the judges, claiming that Jordy was robbed. The truth is, if you watch all four scoring waves on the heat analyzer, it's very close and could be argued either way. I actually think that the confusion is more of a psychological phenomenon here. Um, it's still something that's worth addressing for the WSL. Jordy got those two important scores in the first five minutes, and often judges score those waves lower than if the exact same surfing happened later in the heat. Their concern is that they want to leave room in the scale for what's to come. Maybe the set of the day comes through and allows for something spectacular. So it could be argued that Jordy was underscored by sheer virtue of the fact that those waves were at the beginning of the heat. But the judges do score Jesse's waves in reference to Jordy's, and they still deemed Jesse the winner. With the benefit of hindsight, I actually agree with their decision. The other glaring truth here is that Jordy just undersurfed his two waves, and he never should have lost a heat against Jesse Mendez in head-high Karamas. It shouldn't have even been left in the judges' hands. He is a superior surfer in those conditions, and he had the two opportunities that he needed, but he actually bogged on both waves, and so his scores reflect it. He leaves Bali in sixth place, down the rankings three spots, and will need to utilize this result as a throwaway if he wants to maintain his world title hopes at the end of the season. Another major storyline was Kelly Slater's return to classic form, classic foam, and a classic tenacity to decimate his competition. The last time we saw him at Karamas was in 2013, 
One of the reasons why Kelly is the greatest surfer of all time is that when he's on, his surfing exhibits a tension of power and deftness. There is an exacting precision in the raw explosiveness. He displays it equally at 10-foot pipe, 8-foot J-Bay, and he delivered it once again at 6-foot Karamas. Perhaps when we least expected it, actually, early in the event when the waves weren't great. Two turns in those early rounds were absolutely searing. You've probably seen imagery of them. They are hugely impressive on video and then baffling to dissect in still imagery. He executed both at full speed and employed a level of torque that is simply unmatched. And the speed by which he executes them belies the power. Jordy, Michelle, Wade all have power, but Kelly just wraps it into a tighter, less bulky package. There's a tension between the power, lightness, and speed that was so refreshing to witness once again. When he's surfing at this level, it compares and contrasts beautifully with the rest of the top five. In the five lay days between those searing turns and the final day of competition, Peter King jammed a camera in Kelly's face and got him to confess his headspace about his upcoming heat against Felipe Toledo. Firstly, he admitted that he's been thrown off of his game by the internet's criticisms, but more importantly, and for the first time in years, he professed a bloodlust for beating Felipe. More than his dwindling athleticism, more than his diffused focus, Kelly's lack of cutthroat competitiveness has been the reason for his poor results in recent years. I believe that he intellectually has the desire for a 12th world title, but not the desire to kill that he has for the previous 25 years. Gabe, Idolo, Felipe have complete disregard for their opponents, and they learned that from watching Kelly win 11 world titles. Kelly showcased some of that bloodlust again for the first time in years in these first five rounds at Karamas. His quarterfinal heat against Felipe was the most entertaining heat of the year so far. The waves turned on and Kelly baited Felipe into battling for barrels. Felipe's adept and he knows how to pick great waves, but Kelly's strategy in barreling waves over the years has always been to pick the imperfect ones. The ones that look like closeouts, that allow for magic to happen, they allow for 10 point rides. He nearly made one of those and it had the commentators hooting with each section he made and ultimately at the final section that he didn't make. In the end, he beat Felipe by less than two points. But the reality is we were all left to wonder that if he actually beat Felipe five days prior through his infamous Jedi mind tricks. Kelly would go on to lose against Kano Igarashi in the semifinals. Kelly hunted the barrel again, which he successfully navigated two mid-range scores and then barely didn't make another potential 10-pointer. Kanoa opted to combo waves four turns at a time to the beach for another pair of 7.5s. This third-place finish boosted Kelly into the top 10 for the first time in recent memory into ninth place, headed to Margaret River, a longtime nemesis for Kelly, but perhaps just the adversary that he needs. A friend of mine texted me something about Jeremy Flores early in the week, and I responded by saying that if I never saw Jeremy Flores surf another heat, I probably wouldn't miss him. It's a little bit harsh, and considering that he made the final against Kanoa Igarashi, you might expect me to retract that statement. 
But the truth is I'm reflecting on this event and while he deserves a huge congratulations and he did surf beautifully, I probably still wouldn't miss him if I never saw him surf another heat. I don't remember a single of his waves from this event and they probably won't be on any highlight reel. His biggest asset always has been his barrel riding in big scary surf, but those days are few and far between. He was able to utilize some of that skill set to pick the best barreling waves throughout this event and then he'd pair it with his trademark forehand hack. It was solid, it was beautiful, it was enough to get him through heats, but it wasn't exactly thrilling nor is it moving the ball forward for surfing as a whole. This second place finish catapults him nine spots forward into seventh place. And that leaves us with Kanoa Igarashi, the first Japanese surfer to win a championship tour event. Interesting note, Kanoa claimed 80% of his scoring waves throughout this event. He wanted to win. He wanted this win. He's wanted other wins too. And when he didn't clinch, he'd hit the gym. He'd go on surf trips instead of going home. And he's filmed every one of his sessions to study the footage. He's been employing this exact strategy since he was six years old. And he's only increased the level of intensity in recent years. It's been really, really remarkable to watch. He is the surfer that Visa is using in their marketing campaigns for the 2020 Olympics in Japan, where surfing's popularity is at a fever pitch. These are all details that have the potential to either derail or empower a 21-year-old surfer. Very interestingly, Kanoa has opted to simply focus on getting two 7.5s in every heat that he surfs. And that really seems to be an overlooked equation for success on the current championship tour. Huge congratulations to Kanoa Igarashi for putting his head down, doing the hard work, and winning his first event on tour. He goes back to Australia in second place. John John Florence remains in first. Idolo Ferreira is in third. Felipe Toledo in fourth. And Kaloe Andino is in fifth. Margaret River starts in four days on May 29th. We will see you there.